All right, let me just start in prayer before we look at 1 Peter 2. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the precious person and work of Jesus Christ that we see here in this text. May we understand what the text is telling us. May we understand just how important this is. And may we walk away from here living these glorious truths out. May they actually affect us in our everyday lives as we work this week and live amongst people. Uh, Thank you for all these beautiful privileges we're about to look at. So we ask the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to, uh, to teach us these truths, to open our spiritual eyes. We would see these and understand them. We ask that the word would be accurately and faithfully proclaimed and that our, we would uh, bear much fruit from this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many believers who view the Christian life more from the standpoint of spiritual duty rather than spiritual privilege can't help but wonder if any of you are in that boat. You're in that position where you tend to view the Christian life as just got to you know, hang on because it's just a bunch of duty. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but it's what I have to do. Rather than seeing it as a wonderful privilege. And if you're one of them, then you need to listen to what Peter's going to tell you today. Uh, some of these people, I, I know I, my, my tendency at times is to fall into this, this, this view, this position, just kind of see the Christian life as spiritual duty. These, if you're wondering if this is you, let me describe you, if this is you. These people tend to be preoccupied with temporal obligation. They don't cherish the lasting blessings that God has given them to enjoy. They often think of those blessings as reserved in heaven, but not necessarily something to enjoy even now here on earth. Heaven appears to be this realm where everything is privilege and nothing is duty. However, the privileges of heaven will not exclude duty. Even there, there is duty. And, and, and what you're going to see is even, even in heaven, you see the two combining together, duty and privilege. And so spiritual duty and spiritual privilege are not mutually exclusive for a Christian. They're not. Either, and by the way, either in this life or in the life to come, they're not mutually exclusive. And so in this passage here, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing the many spiritual privileges that believers already have in Jesus Christ. See, eternal life is something that you have even now. Even now, you're enjoying eternal life if you are a believer. And so let's have, let's have a look and see here now what, what does Peter say about these spiritual privileges. We're going to read 1 Peter 2. Starting in verse 4. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, 
But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So before we look at these spiritual privileges that Peter's talking about, he kind of introduces us to a couple questions that need to be answered here. here. Here's the first one that we need to consider. How do believers enter into spiritual privileges? And the answer is right there in verse 4 for you. And we'll see the question on the screen here for you. And so the answer is simply this. By coming to Jesus Christ. Now, in my Bible, it uses the pronoun for Christ. Uh, so according to the context, you'll know who that's referring to. It's referring to Christ. And by the way, this is referring to more than just salvation or, or the justification aspect of salvation. This is something that's intense. Uh, the idea is here it's intimate. It's, it's an abiding thing. It's personal fellowship. In other words, it's an ongoing communion with God. Not just a decision you make. It's not just a, a prayer that you made. It's something that is to keep going on and on and on. All the way to heaven. Now, who do believers come to? Who do believers come to? Because we just looked at the question of how do believers enter into these spiritual privileges. We need to understand who it is we're coming to. And the text tells us here in verse 4 that Jesus is described as a living stone. A living stone. Now, why is he called a living stone in this text? You ever wondered that? Well, it tells you something about Jesus himself, his very character and what he's done. So why is Christ called the living stone? Number one, because he's alive, <laughs> right? He's not dead. He has risen as he said he was going to do. And so because he is alive, that makes him a living stone. Number two, why is he a living stone? It's because he is literally life. It's what he said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is life. In fact, elsewhere in John, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So he literally is life. 
So he's not one who just gives life. He is the life. And so for at least those two reasons, we call him the living stone, or he's calling himself that. Now please notice here in the text, it says that not all come to Christ. Sadly, not all do. In fact, we see in the Bible, some even rejected Christ when he was here on earth, did they not? Some of his own people rejected him and crucified him. But nevertheless, Christ, notice, Christ is precious to someone. He may not be precious to all, but the most important one, it says here, is that Christ is precious to God the Father. He is precious. And will always remain so. He is precious. So, with that little introduction from Peter there, now we get into the privileges, and that's where the majority of this text is all about. So what privileges do believers have? By the way, note I said some have rejected Christ, and today some continue to reject Christ. And if that is you, my friend, if you do nothing with Jesus, you have chosen to reject Him. So therefore, you are not a believer. And these spiritual privileges do not belong to you. But my friend, if your faith is in Christ alone, and you're not trusting in your good works, these are your privileges. Let's look at these quickly. What privileges do believers have? Number one, in verse 5 we see, believers have union with Christ. Have union with Christ. That's in verse 5. As notice it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice the comparison to Christ. Christ was called the living stone. And so we're like the living stone. In other words, Christ gives eternal life to believers, and then He unites believers together in Him. They're united in this building, of which, of course, Christ is the cornerstone. Now, what does that mean practically? Uh, you might have a hard time understanding that concept. Well, there's some great practicalities here for you, my friend. It means you have spiritual resources that are meeting your needs because you are a part of this spiritual building. You're a part of Christ. And if you're abiding in Him, He's the vine, you're the branch, you're getting all your needs from Him. It also means that Christ's power energizes your service so you can do Whatever He wants you to do in Christ, you can do all things. There's a second privilege here. You have access to God as a priest. Now, as a Baptist, I love this truth because one of the Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of the believer. What a privilege. You need to think about this. Because unbelievers have no access to God. None whatsoever. But believers, on the other hand, total opposite. You have full VIP access to the creator of the universe. Notice I said VIP. It's not just any access. You, you get special treatment. <laughs> right? Now how? how? How is that? Well, notice the text talks about that you are a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. You don't come into this access without being holy. 
God makes you holy by Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Well, sadly, we have difficulty understanding this concept of a holy priesthood, uh, partly because we see so many false ideas and views and concepts out there. For example, within Roman Catholicism, they have a priesthood. But it's not a biblical priesthood, and we have, an under, we have a hard time sometimes understanding because we see so many false concepts out there. And in the Old Testament, it, that maybe if you study your Old Testament, this might help you to understand a little bit more what this means for you. See, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into that one room in the tabernacle or temple called the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Just once a year. And, and God took this matter seriously, by the way. He took it very seriously, and, and Israel was supposed to take this seriously. In fact, everyone who presumptuously crossed into the priestly function w- without meeting the requirements that God had given them, without meeting those qualifications, they, they were going to suffer severe judgment. I'll give you one example that we see in Scripture. This is the example of Korah and the company with Korah who sinfully wanted to be priests. And notice what God does to these people. Let's just It's on the screen here for you. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1 says this, Now Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and On took men... And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring near him, or bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. The man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to him to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And then if you jump down to verse 31, you'll see the result of what happened. What did God think about Korah and his company sinfully wanting the priesthood? 
which God had not given them. Here's what happens, verse 31. The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and and the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. That's what happens when you choose to sinfully rebel against God. Well, praise God, we don't live under the old covenant anymore. Uh, Jesus said we're now under the new covenant. He said that was instituted by Him and His his death. And so these, these kind of limitations don't exist today in the same way. But nevertheless, we, we need to understand the seriousness of the priesthood. God has given us access. It's a privilege, a wonderful privilege. Another spiritual privilege, number three, is believers have access to God through spiritual sacrifices. Spirit, we, we have access to God through spiritual sacrifices. Notice what verse 5 says. As it talks about the the spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So praise God, you didn't have to come today bringing one of your your animals to have it slaughtered. (laughs) That would not be a pleasant thing to bring an animal and, and what they would often do is put their hand on the head of the animal as the throat of that animal was cut and its life would leave the body of that animal through its blood. We don't have to do what the priest did in the Old Testament. The primary function of the Old Testament priest, as they were ministering in the, the tabernacle or the temple, was to offer animal sacrifices to God. That wasn't their only thing, but that was the primary responsibility God had given to them. But when Christ brought in the new covenant, animal sacrifices were no longer necessary. No longer. That's one of the points of the book of Hebrews. You say, well, how do we know that's actually true? Well, read Hebrews. It shows that Christ is superior. He's the best. I'll just give you one verse in Hebrews here. Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete course in that context it's referring to christ christ made the old covenant obsolete that includes the sacrifices the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin that's what Hebrews says it was all pointing to the precious lamb of god who could deal with our sin so now the only sacrifices then remaining for the priesthood of the believer is what we call spiritual sacrifices. You say, well, I'm having a hard time understanding uh, the, the concept of spiritual sacrifices. I can understand an animal sacrifice, but what is a spiritual sacrifice? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the Bible gives us at least six 
spiritual sacrifices, specifically mentions these. So let me quickly read these and give these to you. Number one, Romans 12.1 says that you're to present your body as a living sacrifice, but one that is holy and acceptable to God. So your body presented to God is a sacrifice. Number two, your praise, your worship to God is a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. By the way, that Hebrews 13 goes on to talk about the fruit of our lips being this praise to God. Three, a third spiritual sacrifice you can offer to God is good works. Now, the good works don't save you, but notice again, the next verse, Hebrews 13, 16 says, do not neglect to do good. Do not neglect to do good. And it goes on to to say in that very verse, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So it specifically says one of the things of your parts, I should say, of your spiritual sacrifice is your good works. Number four, giving up your resources to meet people's needs is a spiritual sacrifice. Again, Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, isn't that awesome? Everything belongs to God anyway. It's all His. And when we give part of it to Him and, and give it away and help other people's needs, it, you're, you're actually praising God. You are giving a spiritual sacrifice in the process, even though it already belongs to Him. And then number five, converts to Christ are a spiritual sacrifice. Romans fifteen sixteen says, Paul here says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Wow. People are an offering, a spiritual offering to God. And then number six, Love for others. When you love other people, that is a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews, sorry, Ephesians 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. And it says that walking in love is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you walk in love, when you love other people as you love yourself, God says it's an offering and a sacrifice to Him. So those are just some of the things I've noticed in Scripture that they are spiritual sacrifices. And, and we have this access to God as we offer those sacrifices. Let's move on to a fourth privilege. Fourth privilege is, as a believer... You have security in Christ. You have ultimate security. Now, this, this verse here, verse 6, is actually coming from the Old Testament. Hopefully your Bible makes it look different. You say, well, why is it looking different in my Bible than the rest of the text? That's because it's telling you 
hey, I'm from the Old Testament, <laughs> okay? And in this case, I'm from Isaiah, the prophet. And it's promised here that when Christ came, that he would be the cornerstone of God's new spiritual house. Now, what is this house made out of? Well, this house is not made out of bricks and mortar. It's not made out of timber. It's not made out of whatever else houses can be made out of. But this house is special. It is made out of believers. Made out of believers. Now, who's the chief cornerstone here? Notice the answer in verse 6 is it's Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. And you say, well, what is a chief cornerstone? Because uh, most of us are not builders, and even builders may not understand this concept these days. So you need to understand something. In Bible time here, cornerstone was what set the horizontal as well as the vertical lines of a building. Now, hopefully this little illustration here on the screen might help you a little bit. Often these were big stones, and of course it would be on the corner of a building. And so the builders would use that stone to, to have all the lines going up, down, crossways, and so that building would hopefully be however square the, the stone was. It was the stone that was setting all the lines of that building. And so therefore, it, it was establishing the precise symmetry or even the proportions itself of that building. And so to ensure the perfect precision of God's spiritual house, God gave us Jesus. <laughs> he is this cornerstone. He's that main cornerstone. And he, by the way, he, it had to be him. It couldn't be anything else. He's the only one who is flawless. The only one where we could have straight lines from. And guess what? The only one who was able to do that, set the building, was Jesus Christ. And so from the reality of Christ being the chief cornerstone, there, there's some great implications here for us. So from that reality is, of course, issuing, number one, the security of the believer. The security of the believer. And so notice the verse itself here in verse 6 says that you will not be disappointed. You won't. Instead, believers are going to be forever secure in Christ. And so because of Christ, no one is going to be out of alignment. You're never going to have a believer somehow falling off the building, <laughs> right? Because it's all in perfect alignment because we're aligned with the cornerstone, Jesus. Now, sometimes when people build buildings, you can have parts of the building falling off because it may not be just right. But there is no way that a believer can fall out of alignment in this building. It's just never going to happen. Nobody's going to fall from the house. The building is secure. Why? Because it all fits permanently together in Christ. And so therefore, this spiritual building is a great illustration, is it not? It is a fitting example, illustration for the believer's security. And so my friend, my friend, in Christ, you are totally and eternally secure. You can't take yourself out of the building Nothing can pull you out of the building. You will never fall out of this building. That's the beauty of this. 
you have security in Christ. Number five, the fifth privilege of a believer is love for Christ. Love for Christ. That's in verses 7 and 8. Again, you'll notice some, some text there coming from the Old Testament. And so, one of the things we see here is that only those who believe show a love for Christ. And in contrast, we have this, this contrast. There, there's those who disbelieve, who do not and will not love Christ. They reject Christ. They hate Christ. And that's interesting because Peter's quoting from Psalm 118. And so Peter's asserting here that the Jews were the builders who rejected Christ. Isn't that interesting? Even the Old Testament was telling us what would happen with Christ. And so to them, why did they reject Christ? Well, the text says they thought Jesus was worthless. He he didn't match up to their expectations of Messiah. (laughs) And so to them, Jesus was worthless. By the way, that kind of rejection shouldn't surprise shouldn't have surprised them, shouldn't surprise us. Because Peter quoted Isaiah chapter 8, which predicted that the Messiah would be considered a, notice what the text says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what Isaiah said, chapter 8. They should have been prepared for it. And so in Peter's symbolism here, the Jews threw away their true cornerstone and then they would end up falling over the very thing they threw away. Ever happened to you? You throw something away, and then you trip over it? <laughs> you maybe forgot where you put it, or it's in tall grass or something, and you're walking around, poof, oh, where'd that come from? Oh, oh, that's where I put that. <laughs> right? That's kind of what they did. They stumbled over the very thing they rejected. Stumbled over Jesus, their cornerstone. And and eventually, they would end up falling over that and then be crushed in judgment by the same rock they rejected. That's what Peter's telling us. Therefore, God judges unbelievers here. Why? Ultimately, for their lack of love for Christ. For their disobedience, it says, as well as their unbelief. That's why they're judged. Now, we don't like to hear these kind of truths. (laughs) They're hard for us to hear. I understand. So, are you ready for some good news? We've already heard some, but the text goes on to give us some more good news. And so, notice verse 9 starts with a contrasting word. Contrasting words like this in verse 9 are beautiful. We ought to rejoice in them. We ought to say, oh, thank God. Verse 9 starts with that word. (laughs) I need some good news. So, this is showing this huge contrast from the unbelievers Now, here's what a believer has. Look at these beautiful spiritual privileges. Number uh, number six, the six spiritual privileges you have, believers have election by Christ. Election by Christ. And that's in those words there in verse 9, that you, my believer, friend, are a chosen race. A chosen race. Now, let me try to explain this a little bit. (laughs) I wish... We could do a whole sermon on this, but in what way are believers chosen? Let me try to help you understand this, I hope. Well, in this context here, it's telling you, you're chosen for salvation. You're chosen for salvation. 
And who does the choosing or electing? Who does it? Well, it's not you. You you don't choose yourself for salvation. The point of, of Peter here over and over is he's showing us God chooses you. You are elected by God. So what is election based on then? Is it based on your good works? Is it based on something about you? No. Peter is showing us, this is one of the main themes of Peter, it's God's grace. God's grace chooses you. In other words, we don't choose God, He chooses us. Now, some people have a hard time with that, that truth. But this should be one of the most comforting truths for a believer. Because He chose you, He's not going to let go of you. Now, if I chose Him, and my salvation was based on me choosing Him, that's not a solid foundation. That's a scary thought. Because you know, it, then it's dependent on me, but it's not. God chose me, and I, I can't pull myself out of the building. I'm never going to fall out of it, and He's never going to take me out of it. Because He's the one who chose to put me there. Number seven, the seventh spiritual privilege is dominion with Christ. And that's in that phrase that you are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now that's a marvelous concept that's, I wish I could explain it better, but notice you've got the concept of royalty plus this concept of the priesthood somehow coming together in one. It's mind-boggling. And so the church is a royal priesthood united with the royal priest, Jesus Christ, and this royal priesthood serves the King of Kings, but we're also a priesthood that then exercises rule. The Bible says we rule and reign with Christ. Now when's that going to happen, by the way? Because we're, we're not currently doing this. So when does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us ultimately that's going to be fulfilled when Christ comes and He sets up His future kingdom during the millennial reign. The Bible says we will we will rule and reign with Christ. So that's going to take place after the seven-year tribulation. All right, You want to do more study on that, I'm happy to to, to do so at a different time. But that, that's basically what, what's happening there in that phrase that we are a royal priesthood. And eighth spiritual privilege is then we're, we're separated to Christ. And, and we now we're called a holy nation. A holy nation. That word nation there, by the way, is um, translated from a Greek word uh, from which it's ethnos. Does the word ethnos, Greek word ethnos, sound similar to English words? Yeah, I hope so. So from that we get words like ethnicity, ethnic, and of course they're referring to people. And and then the word holy, we're a holy nation, the word holy means you're separate. You are set apart. In other words, Christians are a group of people set apart to God. Now why does God do that? Why does God set apart a group of people here as a holy group? Why? Well, same reason He does everything. Ultimately, what's the ultimate reason for what God does? It's for His glory. For His honor and glory. He's glorifying Himself through His people. 
this holy nation. And he wants to have a relationship through these creatures that he has made, these creatures made in his image. And he wants this people group to serve him. So he makes a holy nation to do that. This special group of people set apart for his purposes. That is a privilege. But number nine, there is a ninth spiritual privilege. Believers are a possession by Christ. There's a possession by Christ. Notice verse 9 says, this people for His possession. You are possessed by Christ. See, Christians, uh, you can't be, Christian can't be possessed by Satan or demons because you're possessed by Christ. You can be oppressed by demons, but you cannot be possessed by Satan or these demons because you have one inside you who is greater than he who is in the world. And so the word possession is interesting. It, it means to purchase, to acquire for a price. You take that concept and expand on it. What you get is this, that believers belong to God because He bought believers at the ultimate price, at the price of Christ's death. There's one precious hymn in our hymn book that expresses this very privilege here that we're possessed by Christ. I just want to sing one verse that gets this point across here to you. It's coming from the hymn, I am His and He is Mine. His forever, only His, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am His and He is mine precious words. I am His and He is mine. I am possessed by Christ. I'm a people. There's this people for His own possession. What a privilege. Well, it goes on. (laughs) Number 10 is believers have this illumination in Christ. Because verse 9 talks about coming out of this darkness into the light. What does that mean? Well, the darkness Peter refers to here, to here is, my understanding, is referring to a moral darkness. You say, well, what, what is a moral darkness? It's the inability to see and do what is right. See, that's the way it is for believers. Un, sorry, unbelievers. Excuse me. Unbelievers cannot see and do what is right. It's the sinful state of an unbeliever who is trapped in this spiritual darkness. And how how is that? Well, unbelievers, the Bible says, are born in this state. They're born in the darkness. In fact, Jesus said that the unbelievers love it this way. They love it. Jesus said this in John 3, verse 19 here. 
that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Well, that's, that's sad. But Christ has sovereignly called His elect out of this darkness into the light. How? Well, when believers receive Christ's light, He illuminates our minds. Now, I wish I had time to elaborate on that. There's plenty of scriptures that show how how God illuminates our minds. And, And so now we're able to discern the truth. He changes our very souls so then we can apply the truth to our lives. And so this illumination, by the way, includes intellectual light uh, to, to, be understand, to understand God's truth. And then, this, then God even changes our hearts. He gives us a new heart. Changes from this, this heart of stone into this new heart that's alive. And now you have righteous desires. You want to obey God, whereas before you didn't want anything to do with God. And so all of those things weren't possible before conversion. And so, what a privilege of illumination. That is a spiritual privilege. And number 11, believers have this spiritual privilege of compassion from Christ. Verse 10 is kind of confusing sometimes for some people. But notice verse 10 says, Once, as an unbeliever, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What the, that's that contrast from an unbeliever to a believer. I, I've chosen to use the word compassion here instead of in my Bible. It says mercy just because mercy is synonymous with compassion. And essentially it involves God's sympathy with sinners. And, and, and God understands the misery of the sinner and The idea of God withholding from the sinner His just punishment for their sins. As an unbeliever, the Gentiles knew no compassion from Christ. Verse 10 says, this is the way you once were. Once you were not a people. But then Christ's compassion has made believers God's people. What a contrast. How has that happened? Well, the elect receive God's forgiveness... Forgiveness from what? Forgiveness from our sins. And we get His deliverance from this eternal condemnation. Wow, I'm just blown away when I think about this. We need to think about this. A believer goes from judgment in hell to this eternal inheritance in heaven. That's a nice privilege. That is a beautiful privilege. Well, there's one more we need to mention here. We'll close with this one. A believer enjoys the spiritual privilege of proclamation of Christ. Now, I purposely skipped this in verse 9 because there's this this purpose clause here in verse 9. Notice, so that you may proclaim. Did you see that in verse 9? So you're this chosen race, this royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession. Why? Why did God do this for you? Why? (laughs) Well, there's your purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him 
you have a purpose in life. And by the way, there is no higher privilege than to be the herald of the king. The king of kings, in fact. And, and not only that, I feel sorry for some of these heralds who have to deliver the king's bad messages, but no, we're delivering good news, the Bible says. We get to deliver the gospel. And what does it mean to proclaim anyway? It means to proclaim these excellencies means you're publishing these things. You are advertising for the king of kings. Well, what are we to publish and advertise? Well, the text in verse 9 says, the excellencies of Christ. What does that mean? (laughs) How am I supposed to advertise and publish the excellencies of Christ? I'm not even sure what that is. Well, it's just this, my friend. Excellencies include praises. The excellencies include the virtues of Christ. The excellencies include the works of Christ. It includes the very character and quality of Christ. And so, my friend, your duty, well, sorry, privilege, is to proclaim it, to publish it, to advertise it. And so, let me just give you a little challenge here. Do you know any? Do you know any of these excellencies? Because it's kind of hard to publish and advertise something you don't even know, right? You need to know them so that you can do what it's talking about here, right? So let me just, let's just think about this for a moment, okay? Christians have this distinct privilege of telling the whole world that Christ has the power to save them. That's just part of it. And so the Bible says He came, Matthew 1, 21, He came to save His people from their sins. And He is. And we get this privilege as the herald of the King to proclaim this news. So how are you doing? <laughs> Convicting, isn't it? I know, I've had my, my, my toes are like about a millimeter thick. God's been squashing my toes this week. Because I am not a very good herald. We can all do better, I'm sure. By God's grace, we can be a herald, publish and advertise these glorious excellencies by telling other people about Christ. And so my friend, how are you doing? Are you one of these people who just are living the Christian life out of duty? You know, you, you know the Ten Commandments, you know these other commandments, and, and you're just gritting it out. Oh, okay, i got to do this because the Bible tells me to. You know, you just, it's just another daily grind for you. Or, I hope, I hope, and here's why Peter's telling you this so that you would live the Christian life and even be persecuted like these people whom he's writing to, living the Christian life, even going through persecution, out of delight for God. Because you understand these spiritual privileges. And so people can do to you whatever they like. They can kill you. They can slander you. They can put you in prison like you know these people happening here. And it's like water off the duck's back. It's just water off the duck's back. It doesn't really bother you that much. Because the Christian life is a delight because you understand what God has done and continues to do for you. I think Peter's point here is to show us love. 
Because love is a powerful motivator. Guilt can be a motivator. See, you can do things just out of guilt because you know it's, I have to do this, it's my duty. But then you can do things out of delight. And when things, living the Christian life becomes delight, nothing will stop you. Nothing. And so I hope that love becomes the more powerful motivator in your life. So may these spiritual privileges change your perspective. So here's the proposition from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. That God wants you to cherish these spiritual privileges that He's given to you. This is what He wants you to cherish. These spiritual privileges. So that you would be motivated by this love. So that even when persecution comes your way, it, it won't be easy, but you'll have the right motivation. You'll, you'll have the backbone. You'll have the foundation to, to upgird you, to support you through whatever that persecution looks like. May God's grace be enough for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these spiritual privileges You've shown us here. Again, we ask You'd help us to understand them. May we want to understand them more. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for Christ. He is precious. And may we want to know Him better every day, continually growing in this grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we know Him. May it be a personal, intimate, powerful, experiential knowledge. Not just something we know, but may it be something we actually experience in our lives. And may this world around us see Christ in us. He who is our, our hope of glory. Encourage us with these spiritual privileges. And as persecution comes our way in whatever form uh, it may take, may we have what we need. This is what we need. Your grace is sufficient. We know that as we say it, but it's harder to live that. So may we live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.